So we have been studying the book of Hebrews, and we're going to do that for the rest of the semester. Um, and we've come now to a passage that, as I was kind of teasing a little bit on Facebook today, uh, one of the most hotly debated passages in the entire New Testament. Certainly, one of the passages that uh, confuses and upsets people, uh, Hebrews chapter 6. As you might know, there is a debate among Christians and among Christian theologians and Christian denominations about the issue of whether Christians can lose their salvation. Sometimes it's stated like, you know, do you believe in eternal security or once saved, always saved? Uh, I'm going to tell you, talk a little later about why I think that way of describing it is unhelpful. Um, but this is one of the passages that's really at the center of that debate. There are those who believe that Christians who have come to faith, who've been converted, can fall out of that state of conversion and lose their salvation. And this is one of the passages, Hebrews chapter 6, that is appealed to often to support that view. There are other Christians who say, no, that's not the case, it's not possible, and they, when they look at Hebrews chapter 6, tend to try to explain it away. And so I hope that as we look at it tonight, you will, you will be able to understand, like, why is this in the Bible, and what is it about? And what does it mean for us tonight, this passage? I will tell you, I have a personal um, connection to this passage as well. Re Hebrews really is one of my favorite books in the Bible, maybe my favorite book, um, probably because the idea that God loves me in an intimate way, in a relational way, is something that's hard for me to believe, and so I find Hebrews is a good book for me to sit in a lot. It's easier for me to think of terms of God being a judge, and I was guilty and now I'm not guilty, and sort of just think of relationship with God in sort of legal terms, whether I'm guilty or not guilty. But with Hebrews, we get into, for me, much more uncomfortable territory, because you get into access to God's presence, an intimate relationship. And I don't know about y'all, but I would much rather know where I stand than actually stand there and enjoy it sometimes. So Hebrews is a, is a good book for me because it challenges sort of my heart craving that I don't really want to be in touch with a lot of times. But uh, in chapter 6, I remember when I was in college, my freshman year, Hebrews 6, a sermon that I heard on Hebrews 6, really knocked the wind out of my sails in a, in a lot of ways. Now, I went to a place called Berkeley College Music up in Boston. I remember, you know, up there in those days, if you found Christians, you were happy. Um, it wasn't like you had a lot of churches to choose from. And I remember going to this church, which I, I stayed at this church. I, I thought it was a good church. Um, but the pastor preached a sermon in my freshman year on Hebrews chapter 6. And he got up in the pulpit and he said, you know, I used to believe that Christians couldn't lose their salvation. But based on my study of Hebrews chapter 6 this week, I am convinced now that Christians at least hypothetically can lose their salvation. Though that hasn't happened to the Hebrews, and there's indications in the text that the writer doesn't think that that's happened to these uh, Hebrews yet, it might, and it's hypothetically possible. And that was enough to send me into somewhat of a tailspin. I can't even explain it to you sort of fully rationally, I just felt like I'd been sort of punched in the gut and had the wind knocked out of me. At some really deep level, my sort of basic core belief that God's love was consistent was shaken. And it was enough for me to sort of pull back 
on pursuing God. And I will tell you, really, for the next couple years, you know, I still was a Christian. I still even went to church and hung out with Christians at times. But there was no, like, real pursuit of God in my life. And I think that, that this sermon on Hebrews 6 had a lot to do with that because it just turned upside down my idea of God's love and made it something that wasn't solid like we just sang or where we're going to sing in a, in a little bit. Christ's love be, was no longer a solid rock. It was, I hope it's going to last. And I had this sense that if God's love was dependent on me keeping my end of the bargain, I was the constant variable. And therefore, like the end result of my life was in flux. And why would I spend a lot of energy and effort if the whole thing might come unraveling at some point? Finally, my senior year, I met some other Christians at Berkeley. We started doing this little Bible study. And this pastor who uh, was at Park Street Church uh, came and taught the Bible study. And I remember one time he said something about, you know, how Christians couldn't lose their salvation. And I said, oh, yeah. You know, even then I thought I was a Bible expert, even though I really hadn't read my Bible, honestly, since freshman year. I said, yeah, what about Hebrews 6? And he said, okay, yeah, Hebrews 6. What about Jesus says in John 10, no one can snatch you out of my hand. What about Paul in Romans 8 saying, nothing can separate you from the love of God, nothing created or uncreated. And he said, Kevin, are you in one of those two categories? I said, yeah, uh, okay, well, what does that mean? Maybe there's a way of thinking about Hebrews 6 that is in line with these other passages. And it was like this, this ray of, of light started to break in on my soul. And it was, in a lot of ways, the beginning of me saying, you know what, I'm not going to take my theological questions and just sort of put them aside and let them sow the seeds of doubt that eventually will sap all of my love for Jesus and sense that he loves me, maybe I need to proactively dig into some of these things. And it started me on a quest, which I've never left in some ways, of wanting to understand God more deeply and not sort of putting my doubts and my questions sort of aside, but actually digging into them and studying and trying to understand what does the Bible mean. So I, I, I take very seriously, because some of y'all are freshmen, and I don't want this message to sort of destroy your Christian faith tonight, and I don't think it has to. The fascinating thing about Hebrews 6 is it's the scariest warning passage in the Bible, arguably, though Hebrews 10 ranks a close second. But Hebrews 6 is arguably one of the scariest passages in the Bible, the first half, and the second half is one of the most comforting passages in the whole Bible. And I don't think God is doing sort of a bad cop, good cop thing to sort of like make you sort of emotionally manipulated. I think that the warning is itself part of God's grace. Because what I've come to understand, not only from Hebrews 6, but the rest of the Bible, speaks a consistent message that our God is tenacious. And even the warning passages are an expression of his tenacious love. So let's look at Hebrews chapter 6. We will start at verse 4. It's impossible for those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, and who have fallen away to be brought back to repentance. To their loss, they are crucifying the Son of God all over again 
and subjecting him to public disgrace. Land that drinks in the rain, often falling on it, and that produces a crop useful to those for whom it is farmed, receives the blessing of God. But land that produces thorns and thistles is worthless and is in danger of being cursed. In the end, it will be burned. Even though we speak like this, dear friends, we are convinced of better things in your case, the things that have to do with salvation. God is not unjust. He will not forget your work and the love you have shown him as you have helped his people and continue to help them. We want each of you to show this same diligence to the very end so that what you hope for may be fully realized. We do not want you to become lazy, but to imitate those who through faith and patience inherit what has been promised. When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. He confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us may be greatly encouraged. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that all scripture is inspired, God-breathed, and profitable. And we pray, Lord, tonight that you would bring great blessing and profit to us. Those who know you, those who are trying to figure out who you are, Lord, we pray that all of us would be blessed tonight, not only through the hearing of your word, but even through the foolishness of preaching. We pray, Lord, that your spirit would come and do a work among us for your glory. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So Hebrews 6. Hebrews 6. Hotly debated passage. Let's get right into it. Verses 4 and 5. What the heck is going on here? I mean, even to read it, you can feel like a heaviness descend upon the room. Can Christians lose their salvation? There are those, like I said, who would argue for this position. There are those that argue this position. And this passage seems at first reading to be saying that. I mean, look at this. Those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who've shared in the Holy Spirit, who've tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the coming age, if they fall away, it's impossible to bring them back to repentance. And yet, what do you do with some of these passages like I alluded to in the introduction? Passages like Romans 8. Nothing can separate you from the, from the hand of God, or from the love of God. Who can bring any charge against God's elect? If 
God is for you, who can be against you, right? What is Paul trying to do if not give you supreme confidence that if you're a Christian, nothing can change that? He goes on a little later in the epistle to the Romans and says the calling and gifts of God are irrevocable. Very strong words. And you find similar language uh, on the lips of Jesus himself. John chapter 10. No one can snatch you out of my hands, Jesus declares. Now, there are some Christians who say, well, no one can snatch you. And this is what some of my friends used to tell me. No one can snatch you out of God's hands, but you can jump out of his hands yourself. Well, okay. I, you know, what do you want Jesus to say to, to sort of tell you, like, he really means what he's saying there? So what do you do with, that, with this passage? Is there a way of understanding this passage that legitimately takes this passage seriously and yet does not bring it into conflict with the rest of Scripture. Now, some people feel no need to do that. Maybe in some of your Bible classes, you've been exposed to sort of the idea that every book is basically its own book that has its own theology and that we don't really believe that God is behind any of them, so there's no need to reconcile that. But in RUF, we believe that God has breathed Scripture. Yes, he used different human beings. As a matter of fact, the book of Hebrews in the very first chapter says this very thing, that God has spoken through various men at various times, and in these last days has spoken to us by his Son. We believe that, that while there are human authors, that God is the author behind the human authors, and that he speaks a consistent message, that God has spoken and he's not stuttered. And so for evangelicals who believe that, like we do in RUF, how do we fit this in with the other passages of Scripture? Well, well, there are several lines of arguing that people who believe that God's salvation cannot be lost when they come to this passage. There are several ways that they try to deal with this. And, and let, me, let me give them to you. And I've held some of these views in the past, but I've come to to not really think any of them really fully satisfy. The, the first view, probably the most common view, is to look at these things and say, well, these, this description in verses 4 and 5 is not really talking about Christians. That you can talk about, in other words, it's to take all these words and try to interpret them in a weak sense. So, for instance, to say, well, they've been enlightened, but they haven't really been born again. And they've tasted the heavenly gift, but they've just kind of nibbled on it. They haven't really ingested it. You see, you see the, how this approach goes? And they would say, well, I know it says it's impossible, but what that really means is it's really, really, really difficult, but not totally impossible. So th this approach basically says, because this passage doesn't fit the other passages in the Bible, and it doesn't fit our theology which doesn't just come out of thin air. I mean, this theology comes. Theology, in some ways, you shouldn't think of it as this weird, abstract kind of idea. It basically means trying to interpret Scripture in light of other Scripture and see how the Scriptures fit together. That's what theology is. It's where it should come from. And so if you take that approach, then you come to this passage, you're like, well, it doesn't really seem to fit these other passages, so maybe the way to deal with this passage is to take these words and this description, which at first blush seems to be talking about Christians, and say it's really not talking about Christians. It's talking about people who are almost Christians, but they're not really Christians. And so to weaken, basically, all of these descriptions. That's one approach. I, I, don't, I don't think that that approach works so well. Uh, I, I, th I think that this is, this is strong language here. 
This is strong language, but I'll, I'll come back to that uh, again. Let me give you a couple other strategies that people use before I give you what I think is maybe a more satisfying way of looking at this. Uh, another approach is to look particularly at one of these words. Um, it's verse 6. And who have fallen away. Actually, in the Greek, that have fallen away, the verb there is actually a participle. Now, participles in Greek are very um, elastic. There's a lots of different ways that they can be translated. Um, and so, one of those ways is to, is to translate this, and this is legitimately within the bounds of Greek grammar, to translate it, while falling away, it's impossible for them to come back. Which is somewhat, seems to be kind of a pointless thing to say. I mean, this is why I don't think this solution is very helpful. But it's like, it's impossible as to, for them to come back as long as they're not coming back. See? The idea, like, it's impossible as long as they're not coming. But once they come, then it's not impossible anymore. I don't think that that really works because you have to say, well, then what's the point of this passage? To just say, as long as you're falling away, it's impossible to not, it's impossible to not be falling away because you're falling away. Um, does, it, does it make sense? Right. And then another approach is to basically say, like the pastor that I had there up in Boston, my freshman year of college, this is a hypothetical warning. But you got to say, well, if it's a hypothetical warning that can't be true of anybody, again, what's the point? When you come to a passage like this, you have to try to think in terms of why is this in the Bible? Why is this in the Bible? So is there a better way that doesn't necessarily weaken all the words or basically make the the passage sort of self-refuting? And I think there is. But I think to get there, one of the things that has to happen is we need to have a more robust understanding of both conversion and apostasy. And maybe apostasy is a new word for you. But let me tell you, let me explain what I mean about this. And I think, actually, that this passage itself drives us to this. Because verse 7 is very interesting. I think sometimes one of the things that can really help you in reading the Bible is to read bigger chunks than we tend to read. So if you just read verses 4, 5, and 6, and then you just sit in that, I think you miss some important interpretive clues in this passage. Why, for instance does the writer to the Hebrews include this stuff about verse 7 and 8, about land that drinks in rain? What has that got to do with anything? Is it a new subject that he's introduced, or is it connected to what he's been talking about? And I think it's connected. Absolutely. And I I think one of the reasons you know it's connected is in verse 9, he says, basically, what I'm talking about is one thing, right? So he doesn't say, okay, now I'm going to get back to what I was talking about. Like seven was a detour, but now I'm getting back to it. No, he, he, he basically refers to everything he's been saying, verses four through eight, as basically being one unified topic. So we have to figure out what does verse seven and eight uh, have to add to our understanding of this. And I think what you see here is that we need to be open to the idea that there can be groups of people who can drink in the same blessings and yet have different results. Now, if you've read very far in the Bible, this shouldn't surprise you because this concept is actually all over the place. 
One of the most famous places, of course, is in the parable of the soil. Sometimes it's called the parable of the sower. It really is a parable of four different kinds of soil, where Jesus talks about a sower went out to sow seed, and he scattered it, and some of it fell on the rocky soil, and some of it fell on the path. And you remember, some of it takes root and grows, and even when the, the sun and all that comes, it still thrives. But there are others that doesn't have good roots, and so it dries up and dies. There's others that, you know, that grows up, and it gets choked out by the weeds. And, and at least what Jesus is saying there is while the word, which is the seed, goes out, it produces different results. And, it, it, and you could say in some ways, like, it really matters what kind of seed you are has everything to do with the kind of result. And the same kind of imagery is being used here, where there, are, there, there is a, sort of a, a, an outpouring, if you will, of rain, whatever that refers to, and yet the result of it is fruit in some, but not fruit in others. And so I think that what he's saying in verses 4 and 5 is that's all examples of the kinds of things that are being poured out on this community. But it's a community, some of whom have responded and there's fruit, and some of them have not responded with fruit. Though in verse 9 he says, we have seen fruit in you. But you need to understand that the Christian community is always a mix. Now, again, Jesus says these sorts of things. Do you remember he says uh, in the Gospel of Luke, there's that story where people come to him on the last day and say, Lord, Lord, right? We did this and we did that. And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Uh, One of the, the best examples is think of Judas, Think of Judas. How do you regard Judas? Is Judas somebody who was a believer and then lost his faith? I would argue that the Bible says no. There is that passage, you remember, where uh, at the foot washing in John's gospel, where um, Jesus takes the basin and the towel and he proceeds to wash the disciples' feet. And you remember Peter says to him, um, you will never wash my feet. And Jesus says, I need to wash your feet. Um, And Peter says, well, don't just stop with my feet. Wash my whole body. And Jesus says, if you've already been cleansed, you don't need to be cleansed again. Though not all of you have been cleansed. And John adds the little comment to make sure you understand what Jesus is saying here. He was speaking about Judas. So at that point, even before Judas has betrayed him, Jesus says he's not like the rest. He's not been cleansed. And yet here's... The, the sobering thing, Jesus at one point sends the disciples out two by two to heal the sick, to cast out demons. They all come back rejoicing that they were able to do it. And Jesus says, don't rejoice that you were able to have this power. Rejoice that your names are written in the book of life. But here's the thing to notice, to note. They didn't all come back and say, hey, Jesus, why couldn't Judas do that stuff like the rest of us? You have to be open to this idea. Jesus does not, or I would say Judas at that point seems like he did the same stuff everybody else did. And yet Jesus in John's gospel does not regard him as washed like everybody else. So is it possible that Judas is an example of what's being talked about here? Of somebody who was a member of the community, who tasted the goodness of the word of God who even was a partaker of the Holy Spirit in some way, 
Because Jesus said no one can cast out demons by Satan's power. Right? A house divided against itself can't stand. It drives you, I think, to this conclusion. And there are other passages as well I could bring up. And I think I put some of them down there on that sheet for you if you want to look these up later. It drives you to this conclusion that you have to have this category of what we might call temporary faith or people that look like they're believers but really aren't. And I think that's what's going on here in Hebrews. So, so we need to think of conversion as something that happens that is, that is really huge. And it's bigger than you just praying a prayer and saying, I'm a Christian now. I think one of the difficulties in dealing with this passage and even this topic in kind of our American evangelical world is so many people have been brought up with an understanding of conversion that is basically you make a decision and that makes God do something for you. It's what we call in in theological terms decisional regeneration, that your decision is what saves you. I think that that is a, a distortion of what the gospel presents. And I think that the damage of that um, bad theology comes home to roost when it gets into this issue of eternal security. Because what happens is, you know, and, and I remember going to a Billy Graham crusade and being trained as a counselor when, when I was in high school. And basically it was, you know, people are going to come forward, you're going to lead them in this prayer, and then you're going to assure them that they're a Christian and they never need to worry about it again. And you're going to give them these verses and that tell them that you're a Christian. But you don't know just because someone prays a prayer that they've been truly converted. You don't. Conversion is something that happens to you. And I would say, I I think often that first prayer may be the first stirring of God in a person. And then often when God is just kind of stirring them up, we tell them, don't worry about it anymore. Don't even think about it anymore. You're a Christian. And there's a lot of people who have been given false assurance. What this passage teaches us is that this is a really serious thing. And that we should never be giving people a sense of, as long as you've walked down an aisle and prayed a prayer, no matter how you live the rest of your life, don't worry about it. Now, this is not to say to you that if you did that, that God couldn't have used that and couldn't have converted you through that. But it is to say that if you've prayed a prayer and walked an aisle, but there's never been any fruit, I don't know if you're a Christian. I don't know. But I, I, I would have some concern. You should have some concern. The Bible would encourage you that if there's no fruit in your life whatsoever. Now, of course, you guys are all perfectionists. So as soon as I say that, you're thinking, well, I don't have perfect fruit. I have, you know, I still struggle with these sins and I still have these doubts. And therefore, I guess I'm not really a Christian. No, that's not true at all. Um, because people who aren't Christians don't worry about it like that. Right? That, that anxiety is probably more of a positive sign than you realize. Um, and in some ways, like the particulars of your situation are, are worth talking about over a cup of coffee. And I would love to do that. I would say one of my main jobs as a pastor is helping people think about these issues and work through these issues, right? Um, but here's what I'm saying. From this passage, you have to have this idea that there are people hanging out with the Christian community who may not truly be converted. And yet, um, and yet... Um, 
this passage says that that's not the case with these people. So what then is, that's conversion. What then is apostasy? That's a big, scary word, isn't it? Apostasy is not Christians losing their salvation. It is people who have professed faith in Christ, who have said, I want to follow Jesus, consciously, deliberately, finally rejecting that profession of faith. But here's the thing. How do you know that you've rejected it past the point of no return? See, this is where you get into the difficult application pastorally. Because there's probably not a person in this room, if you've grown up around Christians and in Christian community, there's probably not a person in this room that can't think of particular people that you would say, I was sure that person was a Christian, but I really don't know now where they stand. And so you have to think about that. How do I think about, um, how do I think about my friend or my loved one? And I would say, this passage says, first of all, you should think that this is serious. It's not something just to mess around with. You should think even in terms of your own life. Like to think that you can sort of go on kind of living one foot in the world and one foot pursuing Christ, uh, kind of go back for a while and then come back, like hopping in and out of Christianity, so to speak. Um, that's not a, a safe place to be. And, and not only that, you know, this, this, I mean, the Hebrews here, he says, you know, I mean, the, the letter is really written in a lot of ways, and there's been this consistent through it, saying things like, you know, while today is still today, don't harden your hearts. Hebrews as a whole reaches out to these people and says, it's not too late. But Hebrews 6 says, it might become too late one day. So when you're thinking about a particular person, here's what I always say. Like, don't just look at the snapshot of their life. Their life is a movie that's still unfolding, right? But it's, at some point, you may wonder whether they really were Christian. Sometimes, I know like with somebody that I was very close to, for a long time I felt like this person was a Christian because they'd walk the aisle the same time I did, and then they really weren't living like it, didn't want to have anything to do with it. And for years I treated that person like a backslidden Christian who just needed to get more serious and needed kind of a butt-kicking uh, by me and other Christians to get more serious about their faith. And I feel like I did a lot of damage to that person in that relationship because I had assessed wrongly. I, I finally began to think maybe they weren't really a Christian in the first place, and maybe I need to do more talking to them like somebody who needs to understand what the gospel is rather than somebody who just needs to sort of strengthen their willpower. And so you have to have this category uh, operating when you think about people. Again, it, it's not indelibly written on anybody. You don't know where they're at. But you must understand that, that there's nothing in this passage that would say that you should write people off and say, well, I'm sure that they've reached this point where it's impossible for them to come back. You don't know. And even though he speaks this strong warning passage here, he says in verse 9, but we are confident of better things in your case, right? So why, and then we get into the, into the next section. And why do these even go together? What's going on here? Why does the writer write this? Look at this, it's very interesting. Um, in verse 
9 and 10 and 11 and 12, you get a little, a little insight here into why he's writing this. As a matter of fact, elsewhere in the letter of the Hebrews, the writer says, I've written you this letter of encouragement. And sometimes you read chapter 6, and you're like, really? This is a letter of encouragement? What in the world? But what Hebrews is saying here is, you need to continue to pursue God. In some ways, you could say it, continuance is the test of reality. But let me just tell you, as soon as I say that, you have to nuance that. Because if you had met David six months after he'd sinned with Bathsheba, and it wasn't like just a little affair. It really was the king gets to do what the king wants to do. You remember that old Mel Brooks movie? It's good to be the king, right? David takes advantage of this woman that he wants. He has her husband killed, and he takes her for himself. Utterly despicable. And he turns away from God, and his heart is hardened. And you would never have thought, if you looked at David at that point, this is a man after God's own heart. But you would have been wrong. If you had talked to Peter after he denied Jesus three times, it's fascinating, you know. I mean, Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss, but Peter denies him three times. And he doesn't get paid to do it. He just does it. So which of them was worse? Now, I don't know if you need to to sort of make that judgment, but Peter certainly is equally as guilty of betraying Jesus as Judas. But do you remember what, what Jesus had said to Peter before that? Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but Peter, I've prayed for you. And isn't that where this passage goes? Like Jesus wants to say, look, there are times when you will be sure that you have fallen guilty of chapter 6, verses 4, 5, and 6. But that's not the whole story. Because our God is a tenacious God. And he wants you to know that he's tenacious. He wants you to be encouraged so that you will show the same kind of diligence to the very end. He doesn't want to sap all of your energy like that misleading sermon did to me. He wants you to be greatly encouraged because your sense of God's love for you and the security of God's love for you has everything to do with you living for him. You could even say it, that assurance is the power to live the Christian life. So what does this passage say to give us assurance? And I will argue this is really one of the strongest passages of assurance in the entire Bible. And what's amazing about it is God wants us to feel assurance to a remarkable degree. Look at this passage here. He says in verse 13, when God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself saying, I will surely bless you. That word surely is the oath. Okay, you might say, well, it doesn't say, I swear an oath. The word surely is that oath. It's an extra, I really, really will do this. That's not necessary. It's especially not necessary for God to swear an oath. Why? Because as the writer Hebrew says, why do men, people, why do people swear oaths on the Bible, for instance? Hoping that that thing that's higher than them will like scare the bejesus out of them to such a level that they will actually tell the truth. 
Like we're hoping, here's the point. We know that people basically lie and are unreliable. So hoping to sort of fight against that when it really matters, we make people swear oaths so that maybe we can trust them because they're not trustworthy. But you see, God doesn't need to do that. First of all, there's nothing higher than God for God to swear by. There's nothing that has any kind of power over God that can say, oh, I know you're really tempted to break your word right now, God, but you better not do it or I'm going to get you. There's nothing like that in the universe, okay? So there's nothing for God to swear by that's greater than him, and he doesn't have a need to swear. Why? Because there are two unchangeable things about God that come into play when he makes a promise. He cannot lie. His character is reliable and unchanging. And his word is unchanging. So there are two things that can be relied on. God's character and God's word. So he doesn't need to swear an oath, but he does swear an oath. And what's remarkable is when he swears this oath. He swears this oath to Abraham after Abraham has passed the test with Isaac. That's when he swears this oath. It wasn't because Abraham needed it, in other words. And that's what Hebrews is saying. It wasn't so that Abraham would be extra sure. Look what it says. Because God, verse 17, because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised. Who is that? That's us. God wanted to make it very clear to you that his purpose was going to stand, that he was going to make a great nation, the children of Abraham by faith, his people, his church. And he wanted you to be very clear about that. So he swore an oath to Abraham when he didn't need to. Back when he was talking to Abraham, he was thinking about you. And how you, this night, were going to need to be more confident about God's purpose. That you were going to need to be very clear on what God had purposed. And so he swore an oath to Abraham. Isn't that remarkable? That God didn't just do it. He did it because he knew you needed it. Don't you know that you need it? I need it. I doubt God's purposes all the time. I doubt it all the time. And God says, look, I knew you would. And so I went out of my way. I went above and beyond what was needed so that you would be very clear about this. And not only that, not only that, we have this anchor, this hope, this promise, but we also have more than a promise. We have a promise that was made and kept. We have Jesus who has entered the true holy of holies, the very presence of God. And he has taken the punishment that all those who would dare stand before God covered in sin deserved. And then he has opened the way for us to stand before the very presence of God and look up to come boldly before the throne in our time of need. So we have this this hope, not just God's promise, as wonderful as that is, but we actually have a high priest. 
we have actual events that happened. Jesus really did not just die on a cross, but in dying on the cross, the Bible says he was entering into the true sanctuary, the very presence of God, and doing the sacrificial work that needed to be done so that you could get in, so that you could have access and never be cast out. And not only that, but he has become a high priest forever. So even now, he lives to do the work of the priest, which is what? To intercede, to stand before the Father and say, God, if you're ever tempted to reject these people, look at these wounds. The way Martin Luther said it one time, I think it was so great. He said, if the devil ever comes to you and says you're a miserable piece of crap, what right do you have to think that God loves you? He says, don't try and argue with the devil. Don't try and argue with the devil. He'll beat you every time. He'll be able to bring up all kinds of things that you know you feel bad about. He says, no, what you should say to the devil is, devil, you're right. I am a miserable piece of crap. (laughs) And you don't know the half of it because you don't know all the stuff that's in my mind that I want to do. Because there's nowhere in the Bible that says that Satan can get into your mind, you know, and read your thoughts. It says that in silly movies, but it never says that in the Bible. Satan, you don't know the half of it, Luther says. Tell him, Satan, you don't know the half of it. Much worse than you think. But go take it up with Jesus. Because he lived and died in my place. I've got nothing to say to you, Satan. This is between, this is between you and God. And God said that what Jesus did finished the work. And everything has been done so that I can have the hope that is the anchor for the soul. Right? So this is serious stuff because there is no anchor for the soul outside of Jesus. All other hopes, all other hopes are wishful thinking. But what Jesus has done worked and secured your place. So the question tonight is, have you fled to take hold of this hope? Do you need to flee even tonight to Jesus and say, I don't even know what I'm doing, but I know that you're the only hope and I need you to come and to break into my life and take me as your own. Maybe that's the prayer you need tonight. Maybe the prayer you need tonight is, Jesus, I'm so sorry that I've doubted your love for me. Would you break in again and make it very clear to me that if I'm your child, nothing can change that. Maybe this warning passage, think about this, the warning passage might even be one of the ways that God holds you to himself. This is, this is deadly serious stuff. Don't play around with God. But our God is a tenacious God. And he even uses warning passages to wake us up and to draw us back to himself. Why would he bother? If he wanted to cast you aside, why would he bother to write Hebrews 6? He doesn't want you to run away from him. He actually cares. For some of you, maybe you've never known a love like that that really cared whether or not you ran away. But our God is tenacious. 
He's jealous for your love. And he's deadly serious about Jesus living and dying in your place. Let's pray together. Speak these words into the deepest parts of our soul, even tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.